Julie said that I had been here since 1984. Um, um, I've been here through four pastors, and none of them have had the guts to allow me to stand <laughs> in this place. Um, 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 I'm wearing a tie and a, and a jacket today. Uh, most of you have never seen that. Um, the tie is older than half of you in, in this room. Um, the, the, the reason I'm wearing it is really not because I'm up here, but um, this is Memorial Day. I'm wearing this uh, <laughs> because Boots Fitzpatrick, uh, when she was chair of deacons, would always insist that anyone of the deacons that was going to do service in front of the church wear a tie and a jacket. And so in memory of Boots, uh, that's why you see this. Most of the work I do as far as with scripture is working with words. Um, I enjoy reading about the history of words and how they're used over time. And words change their meaning over time. Uh, we use them differently. Uh, I use the word cool a lot. I think it's because I'm lazy. Instead of saying, uh, I really like that, it's a good idea, it's a great idea, let's go with that, I'll say, cool. Uh, <laughs> it's just easier to do. Uh, but the word means all kinds of things. It can mean uh, that this is fashionable. It can mean calm as opposed to agitated. Uh, of course, the original meaning was a reference to temperature. Uh, even that, though, is relative because the difference between a cool morning and a cool iron are as different as daylight and dark. Uh, some words go out of out of uh, fashion over time. In the 1950s, there was a group of people uh, uh, in a group called the Beat Generation that used a word, daddy-o. Have you ever heard the word daddy-o? Uh, no one uses that term anymore. The, the same is true with several of the words that are used in our scripture this morning. For instance, the word gospel. When we hear the word gospel used today, it is uh, used in a sense of certainty or truth. If you hear, hear someone say, now that's gospel, normally there's their meaning. That is a truthful statement. They may even say, that is gospel truth. Um, in, in our culture, uh, the word has lost its New Testament meaning. If we were going to translate the word gospel in a, in a more meaningful way to us, uh, we would uh, tr probably translate it as uh, good, good news or great news. But the meaning of the word carried a little bit more weight than that. Normally it was used of a messenger who was carrying a, a message of victory in battle back to his home city. 
But the good news wasn't just the outcome of the battle itself. The good news was, was that the victory had inaugurated a period of peace. We've all seen film clips of World War II where at the end of World War II, there was dancing in the street. Uh, everybody was kissing everybody and hugging and dancing. And I looked up some uh, headlines from that time, and full-page headlines said, Peace, or Peace, it's over. The full pa- front page was like that. There was a sense of joy associated with peace. If we were to translate the word, I think we would translate it today if we were going to get the full meaning of it. Gospel is a joyful message of the inauguration of peace. In Jesus' day, you would think that this message of joy and peace would have come through the organized people of God, through the Jews, through the rituals, through the sacrifices, through the offerings at the temple, but That's not the case. The message is not evident in the seat of religious prowess or economic power. Our scripture tells us today that this message of joy and peace was a crying out in the wilderness. Wilderness is a common term in scripture. Moses saw a burning bush on the backside of nowhere in the, in the wilderness. Elijah heard the voice of God in the silence of the wilderness. In these instances, the wilderness was a place where God was encountered in such a way that you saw his signs and wonders. The Israelites wandered in the wilderness for a generation as a self-imposed punishment for distrusting God's plan to invade Palestine. For the Israelites, the wilderness was a place where God's provision was overwhelmingly evident. Water from a rock, manna in the morning, a cloud that covered them in the day to keep them cool, and a pillar of fire at night to guide them. Some people have called the God portrayed in early Hebrew writing as the desert God. The word used for wilderness in our scripture today is the word eramos. We get our word arid from it. It was used at the time to mean a wild and dangerous place, a place where no civilized person would live, a place of sand and rock, predators, scorpions, snakes, outlaws. But today, Uh, It's described as the location of the messenger of God. No one in their right mind would want to travel to this place. They would avoid it. It was a place of fear and even disgust. It was believed that demonic powers, demonic creatures, and monsters dwelt there. Yet, this is the place where the joyful message of God was being preached. 
When I began to look at this verse in preparation for today, I wondered what the word in was, the original word in was, in the phrase, a voice crying in the desert. There were three possibilities. One of them was the word ice, which means into. Another one was a verse, ek, which means out of. These are prepositions of motion, of movement. But the word that was used there was not one of those. Uh, It was a word that meant staying put. The message of God stayed in the wilderness. Today, we have television, internet, smartphones, radio, and the messages all come to us, whether, whether we want them or not. Not so in John's day. To hear this message, you would have to leave comfort and safety. You'd have to leave the familiar and take a trip into the uncertain. The equivalent destination today would be to go to Juarez, Mexico, just on the other side of the border from El Paso. Over the past decades, this border town has been one of the most violent places on earth, where murderings, kidnappings, corruption, lawlessness, all are the rule. What intelligent human being would want to go to a place like this just to hear a preacher. John was apparently a very good preacher. Mark tells us that everyone from Judea and all from Jerusalem went out to hear John. There are two different words used for all and everyone in this verse. The word that is used for Judea is the word that means everyone, a lot of folks. We would say everyone went and did this. And the people from Judea would be the the rural folks, the country folks. The word that was used for everyone from Jerusalem was a word that meant everyone together or a mass exodus or by all means possible they went out to see John. These would be the city folks, the urbanites. What kind of a message would make so many different kinds of people go out to such a place? The message seems simple. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make his path straight away. And he preached a baptism, of, a, a, a baptism of repentance into the forgiveness of sin. When is the last time you heard a sermon on repentance and sin? I asked this question on Wednesday night last week, and, and they said, well, we heard the seven deadly sins not too long ago. There was a series on those. And that's not what I mean. I, I'm not talking about the whoppers. The, the, the lust and the, and the greed and all that. I'm talking about the concept of sin. 
Perhaps the reason that we don't hear more messages on repentance and sin is because of the baggage that the words carry. When we think of someone preaching repentance, at least I always think of a tall, thin fella in a black suit with a string ribbon bow tie with a flat, round-brimmed hat pointing at me or pointing at the sky and saying, repent. These three words that we see in our scripture today, repentance, sin, and forgiveness, were widely used in common culture in the first century with no religious meaning. The word translate, translated repentance is a compound word. It's metanaeo. We get the first part of that word is used in our common meta, is used in our common language metamorphosis or metaphysics. It means change. The end of that word, neo, means mind. So repentance is simply a change of mind or a coming to a different opinion. The word carries the idea that, uh, would have been, that if you had knowledge, you wouldn't have done things that you'd done in the past. If you've ever said, if I knew then what I know now, this is an, an expression of repentance. There could be remorse associated with it, but there didn't have to be. Uh, the act uh, that caused repentance uh, could be done out of ignorance. Repentance could be an exercise of wisdom. Here's an example. If I'm at work and I think I need to stop by the store and pick up a few items, so I'm going to stop by Crest and pick those up. And I'm driving down Hefner Road and I get to MacArthur and I think, ah, I do not want to go to Crest. It's crazy in there. The parking lot is full of weirdos and I am not going in there. I am going to go to Sprouts. I can get in and out of there quick and I can get home in a hurry. And so instead of driving straight down Hefner, I turn on to MacArthur and I go down to Sprouts. I would be using the word properly if I would have said, I have repented of going to Crest, and I went to Sprouts. If I left Sprouts, and there was an accident in front of, of the exit, and it took me an hour to get out of there and to get home, I would be using the prop word properly if I said, I repent of my decision to go to Sprouts. The emphasis is on a change of mind. If you have ever said, I will never do that again, you could say, I repent of doing that. If you ever say, I've changed my mind, you could have said, I have repented. You can tell how much baggage this word carries because it sounds so strange to use it with some such common and normal activities. There is an element of open-mindedness that is evident in repentance. The openness to change, the openness to change your mind when presented 
with new information. One time I was listening to a debate between Bill Nye the Science Guy and a fella that was arguing for the six literal days of creation. Now, if I don't, I'm not arguing for either one of those. Please don't get that. But the fellow that was arguing for six literal days of, of creation said, I have scientific proof that the world was created in six days in 404 B.C. You guys know the scientific method. You make an observation, you form a hypothesis, you form an experiment, you collect data, you put, put that into information and you check it against your hypothesis. And if your hypothesis is wrong, you create a new set of experiments, you collect new data, and on and on and on. The, pro the process of science is the process of being open-minded to change. Bill Nye asked the fellow that was arguing for the six literal days of creation. He said, is there anything I can say to you that would change your mind? And the fellow said, no. There is nothing you can say to me that would change my mind. Closed-mindedness is synonymous with being unrepentant. To repent, you must have an open mind. When used by the New Testament writers, the kingdom of God and repentance are always linked. The message of the kingdom is always the preaching of repentance. Repentance does not bring the kingdom it creates the possibility to participate in a kingdom which is already here. Jesus brought it. We participate in it. Those who think that they must bring the kingdom do odd and destructive things. They run airplanes into buildings. They shoot and kill abortion providers. They try to make laws that force morality or they try to create laws that make for social programs. They try to place religious symbols in government facilities. Being open-minded does not mean that we should buy everything that we hear. Paul says, do not despise preaching. Rather, test everything and cling to that which is good. The author of Ephesians tells us that we should not be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Repentance is, in effect, the search for the mind of God. The result of the search is joy. Sin is another word that is used in our scripture that has developed a lot of baggage over the year, years, which hampers our understanding of it. The word has numerous uses. It's a common word. If I were to shoot an arrow at a target and I missed 
the bullseye, it could be said that that arrow sinned. If I do not get the point that someone is trying to convey to me, and I just can't pick up the point, my intellectual inability would have been called sin. It can be a failure to find what you're seeking. Just a failure in general would be considered a sin. If I were walking along the sidewalk, not paying attention, and my foot slipped off the curb, it would be called a sin, a misstep. If I were walking down the same sidewalk reading my scroll and I ran into someone and knocked that person over and they scraped their knee or their arm and they were injured, the word sin would describe what I had done. There's no intent in it. There's no moral value attached. If fault could be attached to an act, the word sin was used for that act. The word was used to describe a break in relationship or a break in alliance or an act that destroyed peace. You can see how pervasive the word was and how impossible it would be to live a normal life and to not commit an act or thought that would be described by the word sin. Here's what I wrestled with as I prepared for this. Why in the world would such a broad term be used in the New Testament by the New Testament writers to describe the messed up relationship between human beings and between humanity and God? It seems far too common a word, far too broad. Wrestling with it, I came up with what I think is one of the reasons why the word might have been ideal to describe the goofed up relationships that we have both with other people and with God. It is that it puts us all on the same footing. None of us can can be described as not being sinful. Here's an example. If you took me out into the ocean 500 miles and dropped me in and said, swim. (laughs) And they took you out 50 miles and dropped you in the ocean and said, swim. We would both be in the same predicament. We would make it maybe five miles. Maybe 10. If we were young and strong and knew how to swim, we might make it 15, maybe 20. But we would both be too far away to make it back on our own. We would both be doomed. We would both be without hope. If we had powerful lights attached to our back as we swam, and someone millions of miles out in space looked at the earth and saw a light, they would say, I see a light. They wouldn't say, I see two. The distance from the telescope to the lights would make it appear to be one light. 
The same is true. I used to drive through Arizona and New Mexico and Nevada, and you can see miles and miles down the road. And whenever a car came over a hill that was that far away, you didn't know if it was a motorcycle or a truck or a car, you saw a light. The distance made, the distance from the light made the distance between the lights nothing. When we put into perspective with God, a God that is called holy, we find that there is no moral high ground between us. No matter what our worldview is, no matter what our politics are, no matter if we're liberal or fundamentalist, no matter whether we're Republican or Democrat or poor or rich or ugly or pretty or mean or kind or strict or lenient, inked up or not, bathed or stinky. Paul says it this way, there is no Jew nor Greek. There is no slave nor free. Jesus is constantly telling everyone that their definition of sin is too narrow. You've heard it said of old that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look at, a, at another woman with, a, with lust in your eye, you have committed adultery already. Your definition of sin is too narrow. A man hired some laborers, some at 6 a.m., some at noon, some at 3 p.m., and some right at quitting time. And when it came time to pay them, he paid them all to the same. A level playing field. Two sons. One stayed at home and worked his fingers to the bone. The other one took half of his dad's money and went off and partied and partied and partied. Woke up in a drug from a drug-induced coma in a pig pen and went back home to the father. They were both on level footing. When the word is sin is used for the relationship between humanity and God, there is no moral high ground. This means that if we look down our noses at someone else, believing me, we are more right, if we demean someone, if we leave fellowship or refuse fellowship because we are right and they are wrong, it is because we have narrowed our definition of sin to the point where we are excluded from being described by the word. Until we understand the depth of the word sin, we cannot understand the depth of the concept of grace. Until we grasp the width of the concept of sin, we weaken the impact of a scripture that says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We limit the amount of joy we find in a scripture that tells us that we can boldly approach the throne of God. If our definition of sin is too narrow, we lose the joy of grace, that the joy that grace is supposed to bring to our lives because we have excluded ourselves from being sinful or being as sinful. On the other hand, 
if our definition of sin is too wide, we lose sight of the important relationships and the important moments in life. Jesus addressed this too. Martha, Martha, you are busy with so much, yet you are missing the things that are meaningful. If our definition of sin is too broad, we feel that we alone are carrying the load that no one else understands but us, that we feel that no one else cares. Life is spent in an attempt to do it all to please God. We wear ourselves out doing good, and we lose the joy of grace. It is kind of like supersizing a meal at McDonald's. It seems right at the time, but it ends up giving us heart disease. If grace that overcomes our sin is to bring us joy, we must be diligent in keeping our definition of sin from becoming too wide or too narrow. The test is joy. The final word that we're going to look at this morning from our scripture is the word forgiveness. The word means to let go or to leave behind or to abandon. When it's used uh, of marriage, it can be a part of a divorce. It can mean to leave in peace or to leave alone. When it's used of a loan, it means that you release from collection. We still use that term in finance today. You can be, for, a loan can be forgiven. In most instances in the Old Testament, it refers to God's forgiveness, but Jesus takes this concept a step further in that he dispenses forgiveness, and it gets him in all kinds of trouble. More than that, He commissions his followers to issue forgiveness. Most of the time when we talk about being, we talk about being forgiven of God, by God, but this verse uses the word differently. This word describes the abandonment of sin as a part of repentance. In other words, This verse is saying that we practice forgiveness in the same way we practice repentance. We change our minds and we abandon our sins. What is interesting here is that that we have become active participants in handing out forgiveness. All of us. Both forgiveness of ourselves and forgiveness of others. It's not just a God thing anymore. The result is joy. I've mentioned grace several times, and the word grace isn't, isn't mentioned in our scripture, but it's central to our understanding of Repentance and sin. We all know about grace. We have it printed on the side of of our building. 
If we were asked what is grace, we would probably give the common definition. It's God's unmerited favor. Um, the impression we give here is that, that we offer grace, that we are a gracious people, which we should be. But the concept of grace in the New Testament takes it a little bit further in some instances. Many times grace is seen as something that we receive as a result of repentance and forgiveness. But the opposite is true. God's grace is realized prior to repentance and forgiveness, not after. Grace draws us to repentance, making repentance into a thankful act of gratitude. Grace is not earned. This means that all the good we do or try to do is not done to gain God's favor. It's not done to make God like us. It's not done to gain heaven. It's not done to escape hell. Repentance and the abandonment of sin are our way of saying thank you for grace that is already given. Again, we do not repent to gain God's grace. We repent in response to it. If our definition of sin is too wide, we live lives out of duty rather than out of gratitude. If our definition of sin is too narrow, we live lives of entitlement rather than humility. If we close our minds, we stifle the creative movement of God within us. And if we are unforgiving or unforgiven, the weight of sin smothers joy. Listen to the scripture that was read earlier today. The translation here has tried to eliminate all of the baggage words and replace them with words that would have more meaning uh, to us and would have a similar meaning would have a similar meaning for us than it had for the first readers. Listen to this. Just like it was foretold in the scripture by Isaiah, who said of the Messiah, Look, right here before your eyes, I am sending a message, messenger to prepare a way to receive you. He will be a voice crying out in desperation in a wild and dangerous place, saying, participate in the creative activity of God by preparing a way to receive the Lord. Straight away, create with God his road. God's ambassador, John, came in a desolate and dangerous place and preached that people must change their mind and abandon the things that hinder peaceful relationships between people and between humanity and God. And they participated in a public ritual of washing themselves in celebration. And every one of the country folks came from Judea and all of the city folks emptied Jerusalem and came out in mass and agreed that, they, that their old ways had failed to remove 
the barriers between themselves and God. And they participate, participated in a joyful ritual of celebration by washing themselves in the Jordan River. Now, this is the beginning of Jesus Christ's joyful proclamation of peace. If you have reversed grace and repentance, or if your definition of sin is too wide or too narrow, or if we are not participating in forgiveness of ourselves or forgiveness of others, and if we are not receiving forgiveness from others or or from God, we are smothering rather than carrying Jesus Christ's joyful message of peace that our world so desperately needs.